0: The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at ShadesValley.org. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, if you haven't done so yet. Uh, on July the 20th of last year, at approximately 8.07 p.m., I did something that I never would have anticipated I would do. Uh, Holly's doctor allowed me to deliver our fifth and final market shades, final child. Now, make no mistake, shades, I, like, I don't tell you that to like brag on me. What I did was not amazing. I did not do any of the work. I just played catcher. What Holly did was amazing. But what I will tell you is that what I felt Was amazing. This is one of the few moments in my life where I was aware of absolutely nothing but the moment. Holly told me later that I was literally laughing uncontrollably as, as Solomon entered the world. I mean, this was just sheer joy. But you know what's ironic to me is that Solomon in that moment was not experiencing sheer joy. He was not laughing uncontrollably. If anything, he was screaming uncontrollably. Rude, not appropriate for the moment, I must say. I'm joking, understandably. I mean, if we imagine birth from an infant's perspective, that's got to feel like death, right? What if something is not right? But the rest of us present for that event, we rejoice because we know something that the infant doesn't. This isn't death. It's life. This isn't isn't the end, it's a beginning. Even Holly, who obviously was going through immense pain in that moment, even still, amidst the pain, she was filled with joy. Joy amidst pain that no infant could possibly understand because they can't know the truth that we know. They don't have a full picture of reality. They can't see in that moment that joy is right. I'm willing to bet that the Philippians felt as confused as infants during birth the first time they heard Philippians 1, 3, and 4. Look at it with me. Right after his greeting, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Joy. Like Paul says, that's right now, that's what I'm feeling. Yet, by the time we get down to verse 7, we are going to learn in just a moment when we get there that Paul himself is in prison. Right now, in prison, I feel joy. As a matter of fact, he's not just in prison. If you read the whole letter, which I highly encourage you to do, it only takes 15 minutes, even if you're a very slow reader like myself. I would encourage you to read this letter multiple times as we study our way through it. But if you read the whole letter, you find that Paul is not just facing opposition from outside the church by being imprisoned by Rome. No, he's in fact facing opposition within the church. You also learn the Philippians are experiencing this too. We talked about that last week, that, that they are experiencing opposition from outside, that for the last decade, for 10 years since Paul founded the church, they have been experiencing opposition from the Roman culture of their city. We talk about the fact that now they are facing false teachers attempting to creep into their midst. And whereas 2 Corinthians chapter 8 would have once described the Philippian congregation as a congregation that has joy amidst affliction. Look it up, 2 Corinthians 8, that's how they're described. Joy amidst affliction. Now, fast forward to this point when we read this letter, and it seems like they would be more known for their disunity than anything else. I mean, they're a healthy church, but disunified. I mean, like, is that even surprising? Is it surprising that their joy amidst affliction would fade when they've been facing opposition for so long? Ten years and, and over that time, it only feels like the opposition is increasing. Like, they've got to be asking, how are we supposed to have joy in the midst of all this? Paul, how can you have joy in the midst of all this? How can joy be right? And Shades, I imagine that after last week, some of you may have left here asking the exact same question. Last week, we talked about joy being what marks us off as a distinct people of God in the world. Joy that's not flimsy. Joy that's not flippant. No, it's, it's a firm foundation. And that marks us off. Nobody else has that. It marks us off as distinct in this world. And you may have left thinking, how can that be right? How can we, Shades Valley, have joy as we experience daily opposition from our culture? as we see so much false teaching in our day infecting the Christian faith, as we see so much disunity amongst believers constantly plastered on our face, before our face, 24-7, through things like social media. And, and all of this only seems to be increasing with time. How are we supposed to have joy in the midst of this? That, that can't be right. Unless, unless we And the Philippians are like an infant during birth. And Paul has the perspective of a parent. Could there be some truth that he knows that we don't? Could it be that that we're not seeing the full picture of reality? And if we did, we would see that joy is right. I think that is precisely what Paul aims to reveal to Philippi and to us. I think he wants us to see and experience both things. He wants us to see and experience the reality that enables him to have joy amidst affliction. The reality that makes joy right, always. So, let's do two things this morning. First, let's see what makes joy right for Paul. We're going to dig in deep, buckle up. We're going to claw our way through this text. Let's see what makes joy right for Paul. And then second, let's ask, how can we experience this joy? I promise we'll get to application. Hang with me. We'll ask, how can we experience this joy? So first, here we go. That's the plan. First, let's see what makes joy right for Paul. It's going to be some sturdy, deep theological foundations he digs right here. The higher you build a building, the deeper you have to dig the foundation. If we want our faith built to the highest of heights, we've got to dig a deep theological foundation for it to stand firm on. And that's what Paul's going to do for us. What what makes joy right for Paul? He says... We read it in verse 3 and 4. He says that he feels joy every time he remembers the Philippians, which is every time he prays. Think about this. This is constant. Whenever Paul prays, he thinks of the Philippians, and when he does that, he feels joy. Why? What's the truth or the reality about Philippi that's empowering joy in Paul? He tells us in verse 5. Look at it. He says, Philippi, I always make every prayer of mine with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What truth is it that's enabling Paul to have joy even amidst affliction simply put God's faithfulness in the past. This is the start of a sentence that we're going to expand as we go further, okay? So this is just part 1, three parts to this sentence. And right here what we see, what's empowering him to have joy, is God's faithfulness in the past. When Paul thinks about Philippi, his mind goes all the way back to the beginning of his relationship with them, And it starts tracing a line through time of how they've been his partners in the gospel from the first day until now. Not every church could Paul say that about. Like, like Philippi has stuck with him through thick and thin. No matter when Paul was looked at in a good light, no matter when he was looked at in a bad light, no matter when he was free and traveling, no matter when he was in prison, Philippi has stuck with him through thick and thin. And they've done it not just in word, but in deed, in very tangible ways. When we get to chapter 4, we're going to learn that Philippi has financially supported Paul's missionary efforts ever since the beginning. And they still do. Like, part of the purpose of this letter shades to the Philippians is to be a thank you note we're going to learn as we go through it that they have recently sent Paul a gift he's in prison in Rome the Roman government did not foot the bill for most of their prisoners they're providing food. So you had to depend on outside support for that and this is what the Philippians are doing they're providing Paul with support while he's in prison they sent a gift they commissioned one of their own members to take it to him that's not an easy trek Philippi to Rome This man named Epaphroditus carries this gift, and he almost dies. We're going to learn that in chapter 2. He almost dies along the way. Like, he risks his his life. This is the kind of deep, faithful partnership in the gospel that Paul and the Philippians share. And Paul looks back over all of that history. And do you know what he sees? God's faithfulness. He sees God's faithful, not, he's not praising Philippi for their faithfulness. I mean, it may be Philippi working out their own salvation, but Paul knows, he's going to tell us in chapter 2, verse 12, that it's God who works in them to will and to work for his good pleasure. He, that's how he started in verse 3, did he not? Does this, does this paragraph not start off with him thanking, not Philippi, but thanking God? He's thanking God for what he's been doing in Philippi towards him. And just in case you don't believe me, look at the very next verse. After verse 5, look at verse 6. Paul says to Philippi, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. Who is that? Who is he? It's God. Philippi, everything I just mentioned. God did that in you. I'm convinced of this, that he, God who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ God began the work in Philippi, and he is still working through them. This is why joy is right for Paul, because when he looks back at his relationship with the Philippians from the first day all the way till now, even amidst affliction, even amidst opposition, what Paul sees is the faithfulness of God. And that enables him to have joy. But that's not all. Verse 6 that we just read actually expands this truth for us. This this truth that's enabling Paul to have joy amidst affliction. It's not just God's faithfulness in the past that's doing that. It's also, second part of this sentence, God's sovereignty over the future. What's enabling Paul to have joy amidst affliction? God's faithfulness in the past and God's sovereignty over the future. Look again at verse 6. We just read it. Now, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will. He will. Not he might, not this is a hope on a wing and a prayer. He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says, Philippi, God is sovereignly ruling over the future. And the day of Jesus Christ, it's coming. That's a day when Christ will return to make all things new. Philippi, he has already begun that good work in you. This good work of making all things new. That phrase, good work, that's echoing Genesis 1 language. Where creation itself is called God's good work. And we have a promise that he is going to restore, redeem, reconcile that good work. That he's going to bring about a new creation. Or we might say a restoration of creation the way it was originally made to be. Paul says he's already started doing that in you. That new creation work that we call salvation, it has begun in you. All too often we talk about salvation as if it's this punctiliar event that happened in our past. I, I came to know Christ, I was saved. Done. That's not how the Bible talks about salvation. That's how it talks about justification, which is a piece of salvation. No, I was saved. God justified me by Christ dying upon the cross. And now by the power of his spirit, he continues to work out that salvation in what we call sanctification, making me more and more like Christ, not by my power, but by the power he provides until he brings me all the way home. I behold Christ face to face and I will be like him even as he is glorified, fully, finally saved. That's salvation. Paul says, that good work has already begun in you. And this is what I know, Philippi. When God begins a good work, he brings it to completion. No dropouts. God justified you. You will be sanctified. You will be glorified. Because he's the one doing the work, and he completes what he starts. That's just Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. No dropouts. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He's sovereign over the future. So no matter what kind of affliction and opposition Paul faces in in the present, he can have joy. Because he knows the end of the story. God is sovereignly guaranteeing it. What reality is enabling Paul to have joy amidst affliction? God is sovereign over the future. But that's not all. Here's my my full and final answer. I told you there were three parts. Here's my full and final answer to the question, what reality or truths are enabling Paul to have joy amidst affliction? God's faithfulness in the past God's sovereignty over the future, and God's power in the present through gospel partners. God's power. What's enabling him to have joy? I'm arguing that Paul is experiencing God's power in the present through gospel partners. I think it's so clear in verses 7 and 8. Look at it with me. How is it right? How is it right for Paul to feel joy right now? Verses 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way. It's almost like Paul knew what question we were asking. All this joy, this confidence that I have when I look at your past, and when I know what God's going to do for your future, this joy. It's right. You may be questioning, is it right for me to feel this way, Philippi? It's right for me to feel this way about you all. Why? Because I hold you in my heart right now. Right now, I've got this gospel partnership. I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers of grace with me. Right now. You're partakers of grace. He's not talking about way back when, when you came to faith, you were justified just like I was, and we were all partakers of grace. No, he's talking about we're partakers of grace, sanctifying, powerful grace right now. I know that because of the next thing he says. You're partakers of grace with me, both in my imprisonment right now. And in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. I'm defending and confirming the gospel in Rome. You're defending and confirming the gospel in little Rome. Philippi. Right now. Verse 8. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Right now. Paul says right now. Joy is right for me to feel because God is empowering you and me right now he says it this way you're all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel partakers of grace partakers of the power that God is providing to sustain Paul and sustain the Philippians amidst opposition as they proclaim the gospel you see what he's saying? he's saying, Philippi? When you send a gift to me to sustain me in prison, that's God empowering you by his grace to do that. When, when I receive that gift and God uses that, to that's God empowering me by his, his grace. He is providing power in the present through our partnership in the gospel. I'm I'm pulling that word partnership down from verse 5 because the word partnership in verse 5 and the word partakers in verse 7, they have the same Greek word at their root. It's one you may have heard before. It's one of the more popular ones, koinonia. Koinonia, it's, it's commonly translated as fellowship. And that's right, but there's a danger in us translating it that way because when we hear the word fellowship, we think, about, we, we think about like cups of coffee and covered dishes. That's, that's not what the word means. No, no. When you hear koinonia, fellowship, think fellowship of the ring. Okay? Like, that's the first book in Tolkien's masterpiece trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. If you haven't read it, I'm praying for your soul. I'll give you the basic idea. There's a ring that's basically evil incarnate. I'm really simplifying this. It's much more beautiful. There's a ring that's basically evil incarnate. It's got to be destroyed. This is going to be the most dangerous quest ever undertaken. And nine volunteers. Four hobbits, two men, an elf, a dwarf, and a wizard, if you're asking. But <laughs> nine volunteers from different backgrounds, different races, different social classes who have nothing in common. Like some of them even hate each other. Have for generations. Come together. They form a fellowship. A bond begins to form that's going to run deeper than any amount of coffee and covered dishes. Like like their mission ends up binding their hearts together to the point of dying for one another. That's koinonia. Bound together around a purpose bigger than ourselves that we are all willing to give our lives to and for. That's the fellowship that Paul and the Philippians share in the gospel. That kind of bond. That kind of love. Paul actually, did you notice in verse 8, he actually says that he loves the Philippians with the very love of Christ. I don't think I would understand what Paul is talking about, shades, without you in my life. This is how I love you. This is how I can look every single one of you in the eye, even if we've never had a conversation before, and tell you, I love you because I felt it. I love you with the love of Christ. And I know you can't see that in me. The Philippians can see it in Paul, so I'm willing to say the same thing that Paul says God is my witness. Philippi, you can't look into my heart. Shades, you can't look into my heart. But God is my witness, how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is a Christ-empowered love. Like through their gospel partnership, God is providing power. He's providing the power for Paul to love them this way. He's providing power in the present. And that gives Paul joy. So Paul says, joy right for me to feel it's right for me to feel because i've seen god's faithfulness in the past between you and i philippi i've got faith in his sovereignty over the future and i'm experiencing his power through our partnership right now in the present and philippi i am praying you experience all of this too that's what he does in verses eight and nine All the way back up in verse 3, he told Philippi, I'm praying for you all the time. Now he tells us what he prays. And I think that I could dare to summarize it this way. I think Paul is praying that they will be empowered to have joy just like him. Look at it with me. See, if you see the same thing that I'm seeing, verses 8 and 9. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's just told them that he's empowered, right now in the present, to love them with the love of Christ. And now he prays the same thing for them. I pray that you may abound, your love may abound more and more. I love you with the love of Christ. I'm praying that your love will abound more and more. Great. How's that going to happen, Paul? Paul says that their love will abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. What, What kind of knowledge and discernment will make their love abound more and more? Would it not be the same kind of knowledge that has made Paul's love for the Philippians abound? Is he not praying that they would grow in knowledge of who God is and what he has done and what he's promised to do so that they might be able to discern his faithfulness in their lives, so that they might be able to discern they can trust him into the future, so that they might be able to testify to one another of this reality, empowering each other in the present, and their love for one another will grow through that. I think that's the very next thing he points to. Paul wants them to grow in knowledge and discernment. Look at verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent. A more literal translation would be so that you may determine what is vital. What's important in life. You're disunified. You're arguing about what's important in the church and in everything else. I'm praying that your knowledge of who God is, what he's doing, what he's done in the past, what he promises to do in the future, I'm praying that that will grow so you can actually discern what he's doing in your life, tell it to one another, grow in love for one another, ultimately so that you will know what is vital. In other words, as you grow in knowledge of God, discern his faithfulness in one another's lives, this is going to help you determine what's important in life. Philippi, what's vital? Is it? Is it comfort and you not being opposed? It's what feels important to you right now. It's why you don't have joy. Is that what's important, Philippi? Or is what's important the gospel? Knowing Christ and making him known. Philippi, if you'll grow in knowledge of God and what he's doing and see his faithfulness, discern his faithfulness, discern his promises for the future, testify that to one another, grow in love for one another, the gospel will be important. That will be what's vital. That will be knowing Christ and making him known. Philippi, what's vital? Is is it going after the teachings that seem most popular and, and the easiest to follow even though they're false? you got these false teachings creeping in. Is that what's most vital? Or is it knowing Christ? and making him known. Philippi, what's what's vital? Is it it winning the petty arguments that are causing disunity among you? Or is what is most vital unity in knowing Jesus and making him known? I feel like Paul is saying, Philippi. And I, I would say, Shades, I want us to grow in knowledge of God, so that we can discern how he has been faithful to give us Jesus all throughout our lives so that we will know what is vital Jesus and through that through knowing that Christ is vital God will sovereignly empower us into the future and all the way home that's what Paul says in the rest of verses 10 and 11 I want you to know what's vital knowing Jesus and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He empowers that. When you know what's invi- when you know what's vital, when you know that Christ is the greatest treasure there, He empowers you to be pure and blameless. Because as you encounter things that would defile you, you say, "No, I want Christ. I know that He's what's vital. He's the greatest treasure." he empowers you to be pure and blameless. And not just that, he empowers you to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Not to just say no to what defiles, but to say yes to him and to that which brings him glory. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, he empowers it to the glory and praise of God so that God gets the glory. Philippi, here's what's vital. Jesus. That's what this letter is about, Shades. Not joy, contrary to the title I've given the series. It's not about joy. It's all about Jesus. And when you know him and have him, then you are empowered to have joy in all circumstances because you have what is most vital, the greatest treasure, Jesus. When Jesus is your joy and you always have Jesus... Past, present, future, you always have joy. Paul declares this truth so explicitly at the heart of this letter. In Philippians 3 and verse 8, he says, I count everything. What things, Paul? Everything. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's what's vital. Knowing Christ. Knowing him, this is the reality, this is the truth that enables Paul to have joy amidst affliction. He's got Jesus. He looks back at God's faithfulness amongst him and Philippi. And no matter what they have faced, God has been faithful to give them Jesus every step of the way. He looks into the future and he sees God's sovereign promise to bring them all the way home to the day of who? The day of Christ Jesus. He's going to bring us home to give us Jesus. And he looks right now in the present at their partnership. And Paul loves these Philippians with the very love of who? Jesus. God is empowering him in the present by giving him Jesus. It it doesn't matter what opposition or affliction Paul faces. He's got joy because he's got Jesus. And Jesus is what is so Paul prays that the Philippians and we will know and discern the same thing. There is no greater treasure than Jesus. How are we going to do that? Paul saying, this is how I have joy in Jesus. Awesome. We've seen it. How are we going to experience it? It's not enough to just look at it and see it and know it. You know, and I know, all sorts of truths to be true, and we live as if none of them are true. We all know that God is sovereign, so why do we ever worry about anything? Yet we all worry. It's not enough to know. How are we going to experience joy in Jesus? This is the second thing I told you we needed to see this morning. Not just the truth that enables joy in Paul, but how can we experience this joy and Jesus. I think Paul has been showing us every step of the way. I think he's been demonstrating that. If you want to read it later, you can read Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9. It gives me justification for thinking this, because Paul says there, everything that I've shown you, put it into practice. And if you read the verses surrounding it, he's describing this, everything I'm about to try and unpack for us. I think Paul has been showing us all along how we experience this joy in Christ. I'm going to give it to you in a sentence, and then we are going to unpack it in three parts. You saw that coming. All right, so here we go. We experience joy in Jesus through the practice of praise and petition in partnership. We experience joy in Jesus through the practice of praise and petition in partnership. First, We experience joy in Jesus through the practice of praise. That's where Paul starts this whole thing in verse 3. I thank my God. This is is praise. Paul is praising God. And we already know what he's praising God for. For his past faithfulness. He's looking back on God's faithfulness and his partnership with the Philippians. And he's erupting in praise. And this isn't a one-time thing for Paul. He says in those opening verses that he always does this. In every prayer of his, this is a practice for Paul. Is it a practice for us? We may know that we're supposed to praise God and be thankful, but but do we do it? Do we practice? Do we regularly look back at what God has done in our own lives or in our life as a body shades and offer up praise? Like, if not, then no wonder we don't feel joy amidst affliction. Because amidst affliction, that's all we're going to see is the affliction. But, if we are daily recognizing God's faithfulness, then we are constantly recalling reasons to rejoice. And it is the practice of doing this, the practice of praise, that will actually empower the feeling of joy. It's not merely knowing the fact that God has been faithful. No, it's the practice of this. i give you an example. There's a, there's a mom in our body who has a daughter that I uh, would tell you is debatably the most joy-filled person I have ever met in my life. The daughter is the, joy-filled person, the most joyful person I've ever met in my life. And I remember saying that at one point to this mother. And she laughs and she tells me, oh, it's... She was not always that way. Like, she used to complain every single day. It just blew me away. I asked the mom, I'm like, okay, so, so what changed? This mother, amazing mother, made her daughter write down three things every day that she was thankful for. The daughter knew she was supposed to be thankful but it was the practice of this. Over time, the practice reshaped her heart and filled it with joy. Shades, we, we cannot simply know that God has been faithful and know that we have much to be thankful for. It is the practice, the habit of thanksgiving, of praise, that shapes joy in Jesus in our hearts. We are habit creatures, shades. We are teeth-brushing, shoe-tying, car-driving habit creatures. If you ride in the car with me and I start talking to you, we will end up at my house. (laughs) I don't matter where we're going, that's where we're ending up. We're habit creatures, and not just physically. We're not just creatures of physical habit shades we are creatures of spiritual habit you can either try to form those in the direction that you want or you can let them be formed in whatever direction they go but we form spiritual habits why why do you think that we gather together week after week to worship? Why do you think that we sing truths week after week? Why do we preach and hear sermons again and again? Why do, we, why do we come and kneel at this table and take communion again and again? Why all these practices? Why all these habits? Because they are shaping our hearts. They are habits that are shaping our hearts to be centered on Christ, to find joy in Christ. How can we experience the joy in Jesus that we see in Paul? First, through the practice of praise. But there's more to that sentence. Second, we experience joy in Jesus through the practice of praise and petition. We're making requests, asking, petitioning. We saw Paul do this. Paul doesn't just look back on God's faithfulness and praise. He looks forward in faith at God's sovereignty over the future. And he prays that God will do what he's promised to do. That's his petition. Did you notice that? Like in verse 6, he says, I am sure that God will sovereignly complete the work he has begun in you. And then in verse 10, he prays that for them. I pray that you're going to make it. It's the day of Christ Jesus pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul said, I'm sure God's promised that, so he prays and petitions that. Paul prays the promises of God. Do we? Like, is this what shapes our petitions, God's desires? Or my own? doesn't mean we can't pray the things that we want to pray, but it means that there's always a deeper desire. You hear it most explicitly from the lips of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But he's got a deeper desire. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I want that more than I want the cup to pass. I want your word, your promises to be fulfilled. This is what shapes christ's petition does it shape ours what god has promised to do like we can say all we want to that we believe that god is sovereign but it is the practice of submitting ourselves to his sovereignty that will actually shape our hearts when i daily pray for god's will be done. Not just intellectually believe that he is sovereign, but affectionately embrace that reality in my life. Put myself in the posture of prayer, a posture where I'm literally kneeling before my king, a posture of dependence, a posture of trust, and I pray his promises. When I do that, the very priorities of my heart are being reshaped. See with me how this practice shaped the priorities of Paul's heart. Look in chapter 1, down at verse 20. Paul says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. This is mind-blowing. Paul's priority is not for him to live or die, but for Christ to be glorified Either way. How many of you will be comfortable with me praying this over you next time I come to visit you in the hospital? Life or death, Jesus, we just want you to that's what they want. Just Jesus for you to be glorified. This is just literally what's shaping his heart. This is a reality for him. He's in prison, possibly on death row. He doesn't know for sure. Paul's priority wasn't for him to live or die, but for Christ to be glorified either way. What shaped his heart that way? practice of petitioning God to bring about his promises of his kingdom for the glory of his name is this not the way that Christ taught us to pray petition one hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and the rest of that prayer is simply God give me whatever it is I need today Paul wanted the glorification of Christ more than anything. It was, this was spiritual muscle memory for Paul because he prayed this way so long. Any of you ever developed muscle memory before from a practice, playing a sport, something like that? If you've ever learned to type, okay, you know what muscle memory is. If you ask me, my children are learning to type right now. And if they ask me where to find a letter on the keyboard and what finger to use, I have to think about it. Like hard. Hard. but I can sit down at a keyboard and just think words. My fingers magically type them. Muscle memory. We develop spiritual muscle memory too. Through our worship practices, through the way we pray. What you pray shapes your desires. Paul prayed for God to be glorified, and that shaped his heart. So that he had joy even through opposition and affliction because, as we'll see next week, Paul could see how even opposition and affliction were furthering the gospel and the glory of Christ. So he rejoices. Because that's, that's just spiritual muscle memory for Paul. And it can be for us as well, Shades. We can experience joy in Jesus through the practice of praise and petition. And we do this together. It's the final piece of this sentence of how we experience joy in Jesus through through the practice of praise and petition in partnership. We do this together. The, The Philippians needed Paul to point out with his words God's past faithfulness, his sovereignty over the future. His present empowerment and paul Paul needed the Philippians' lives, testifying to him of all these things as he sat in a jail cell. Shades, we need each other. A Christian life is never meant to be lived alone. You cannot find such thing as a solitary Christian in the New Testament, finding joy in Jesus is not about you looking back on your life all alone to see God's faithfulness. No, it's about others around you testifying to the faithfulness of God when you can't see it. It's, it's about your faith family petitioning God to do what He's promised to do, to use your life for His glory when you can't pray that for yourself. I need you to pray that for me when I can't pray it for myself. When when I cannot see or feel the love of Jesus, like Philippi was probably having a hard time doing right here, when I can't see or feel the love of Jesus, I need you to be Paul in my life and love me with the love of Christ. Christ loves his bride. So if the love of Christ is in you, then he loves his bride through you. Blows my mind the number of people that will claim to have the love of Christ in them and not love His bride. That's what His love does. That's who He loves. Especially when she doesn't deserve it. That's gospel love. That's when we're going to experience the power of the gospel when we love each other with grace and humility and forgiveness when we don't deserve it. I firmly believe that we experience God's power in the present through partnership in the gospel. Real koinonia, bound together by the blood of Jesus. You only find this, Shades, you only find this when you do what Paul and the Philippians did. Stay together, committed together through thick and through thin. In, in other words, let me get real practical for you. I would say this to every person here. Find a church to belong to through thick and thin. Like, like do the whole shebang. Go through the membership class. Get your name on a list where people know you and you're known. And I can say Mason, Caitlin, Sharon, Andy, Joy, Kenyon. Yes, Kenyon. <laughs> Matt, Chad. Where you can know people and, and be known. Whether that's here at Shades or whether that's another gospel centered community. Find somewhere and stay there. Be a member, a partner in the gospel, committed through thick and thin. I'm not saying there's never a reason to leave a church. There is. It's called heresy. But find somewhere, stay through thick and thin. Don't hop to the next popular place that looks like it has the best programs. The church doesn't exist to provide programs. The church does not exist to provide trips or kids activities or adult activities and interest groups the church exists to be the bride of Christ Amen. don't just float around based on the place that has the next best program don't don't skip around to just constantly get the thrill of something new like where i'm going my trip We just do things the same all the time. It's gotten really normal. It's kind of mundane. And so my spiritual life just feels like it's dragging. So I'm just going to hop over here to this new place because that'll, that'll provide a spark of something new. Shades, that's making the church center around you. I said last week that we need a Copernicus revolution in theology. Copernicus was the guy that's like, Hey, everybody, we're not the center of the universe. The sun is, not the earth we need a Copernican revolution in theology. We're not the center of theology. God is. We also need a Copernican revolution in ecclesiology. That's the way we think about the church. We're not at the center of the church. Christ is. Don't skip around just to constantly find the thrill of something new. Because if you do that, you will never find the something that's true. The gospel. If you stay with a church family, through it getting normal and boring and mundane, through you hurting people and them hurting you, through the fighting and the backbiting, if you stay through that, you will learn that the gospel is true. You'll learn how to forgive and how to be forgiven, how to give grace, how to receive grace, how to humble yourself. You know, I I think that one of the reasons, a total aside, I think one of the reasons that Christians so quickly join an outrage culture right now it's because the way we have practiced church has made us center on nobody but ourselves. We've never had to learn how to forgive each other. Because when we get ticked and we disagree, we just go somewhere else. We've never had to learn how to be people of grace. And so when we encounter it outside the church, we do the same thing we do inside the church. You get ticked. If you stay, you'll learn how to humble yourself, how to reconcile. You will find something better than the thrill of the new. You will find out that the depths of the gospel are true. It's like marriage. If you flip from one marriage to the next after the initial thrill wears off, you will never discover that there is a love that's better than the butterflies a love of self sacrifice, a love that stays through the normal and the mundane. And learns how to die to self. And consider the other's interest as more important than their own. A love of self-sacrifice. In, in other words, real love. Gospel love. Oh, shades. We need this kind of partnership. For this is where we experience God's power in the present. As we testify to one another of his faithfulness in the past. And we pray for one another. We will trust in his sovereignty over the future. We practice praise and petition in partnership. And this shapes us into a people of joy amidst any affliction, amidst every opposition, because it shapes us into a people that prize what's vital Jesus. Jesus is our treasure. And we've got him past, present, and future. So joy is right anytime, all the time, every time. Jesus is our joy, we always have Jesus, so we've always got joy. Joy is.